This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour of science now, so tuck yourselves in, get some coffee on this nice grey day. In the studio with me is Dr. Laura, finally back from overseas. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Great to be here. I'm here, but where are the rest of the scientists? Well, it's just us. <laughs> we, we don't need anyone else, I yeah, don't we think. Don't. We, um, we're okay. Um, you, you finally got off a plane. Yeah. Yeah, I'm back for a week. Uh, what? Yeah. And then you're going again. Yeah. You've got a problem. But what a week it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I see. And in the studio with us now is our first guest, folks, because we're actually going to swap the show around a bit today. The, Dr. Laura and I agreed that we'd do some news at the very end, but because we have three pretty good guests today, we thought we would right. um, fill up most of them. Well, you know, we don't want to prejudge, but that could be okay. But in the studio with us first is Professor James Angus. He's an emeritus professor from the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Jim, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much indeed, Shane. Great to be here. Now, of course, you used to be my boss. so yes, I did. Yes. And, and you're not anymore, so look out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, used to be Laura's boss by default, too. Uh, no, but uh, you, you were the dean for a, a decade of, was. of medicine at um, the university. So, And there's a big event coming up. This is why we got you in, because we wanted to talk about... Um, you and I always share the affinity for history yep. of the university, and we, we um, work together on a lot of interesting projects in that regard. Regard, but there's a big event coming up for the medical school. Tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, thanks, Shane. Yes, so on the 23rd of November, Friday and Saturday the 24th, we're having the medical building 50th anniversary block party. Hmm. This is to invite back our alumni uh, for 50 years. Over the, that time, they've come through the medical school, particularly through the Sunderland Lecture Theatre. And it's this event that we want to bring back all those doctors that we've graduated some of the staff and, of course, the present students hmm. to enjoy their stories. Hmm. And this will give those alum a lovely opportunity to have a look at our current facilities and the way things have changed since they were uh, coming through as young medical students. Yeah. And f- so the building's 50 years old. Um, I mean, we, we looked at a lot of that when you and I were working together mm. and some of the history of it because it, it has an unusual shape, the building, mm. doesn't it? Like, it's called the Triradia building because it has, it's basically like a three-pointed star. That's right. So the dean of the day, uh, Sir Sidney Sunderland, was through the Australian um, uh, Commission, the uh, Universities Commission, had a sum of money to create a new building. The, at the time, we were across the other side of the campus, away mm. from the Royal Melbourne, in very, very poor accommodation. And so he asked his three uh, heads of the different departments of anatomy, pathology and physiology to think about how they might design the new buildings. And they originally were going to have three buildings set up uh, side by side, with one of them, of course, had to be close to Grattan Street, another one behind, another right. one behind that. So one each. And one each. Yeah. But they couldn't agree as to who should have the one facing the city. <laughs> so one day, apparently, Sid Sunderland said, we're going to put you all in together, we're going to create this, this star, as you call it, and we're going to mix you up on different floors and in different wings. So that's how it came to be. Yeah. They ran out of money, and so poor old pharmacology uh, was left to share another building with microbiology for many, many years. Mm. So the tailpiece is that uh, when we opened the Triradiate back in uh, 1968 with a cost of $4.6 million, mm. they had to increase the scope, then. it was indeed, yeah. to 240 medical students per year. 
and the government helped of course because this is really needed for expanding the number of medical graduates. Uh, so we had a separate building for biochemistry, a separate building for microbiology with poor old pharmacology stuck on the top. And that was your area. And when I came to the university in 1992 <laughs> uh, to face an interview with the then Vice-Chancellor David Pennington, he said, uh, will you come to be our Professor of Pharmacology replacing Mike Rand? And I said, oh, no, I'm very happy where I am at the Baker Institute. And he said, well, what if we complete the medical school? I put two floors on top of the tri-radiate for pharmacology. Mm. I said, OK, I'll come. And, of course, everybody said he didn't write it down. It can't have been. It won't happen. Well, just before he retired as vice-chancellor, $20 million was set aside for us to build pharmacology. And so uh, back in... Um, uh, we, we built it for $20 million and we've, I think we have the best facilities for teaching pharmacology and, and pharmacology research in the world. Yeah. And the, the building now, I mean, it's, as you say, it's 50 years old. Um, is it still functional in terms of the type of space that, mm. that we need these days? Because buildings back then were very different. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, it's not like some of the buildings around which are just dead ugly. It's not, you know, it's not one of those sort of 1960s, early 70s ugly designs. No. But, but in terms of functionality, how does it stack up now? Well, we've done a lot of internal renovation over the period of time and it's still happening today. Uh, we're certainly, um, double glazing all the, the windows yeah. <laughs> facing Grattan Street because of the Metro Rail. Yeah. Huge building yeah. process there which will continue for another five years. But uh, you're right, the teaching, it's not the... We used to give five lectures a morning and uh, in third year was pharmacology and we had many, many lectures going. That's all been reduced remarkably. Uh, students are now in uh, breakout groups where they do tutorials, much case-based yeah. learning yeah. and things like that. And then, of course, they have to have a very large breakout area where can, they can do their own uh, research and study. So, yes, the, the building has been reconfigured. The major lecture theatre, though, the uh, Sid Sunderland Theatre and the Wright, R.D. Wright Theatre, of course, are the major hubs for the formal lectures. Mm. Now, you uh, you were telling me out in the green room that um, you had a visit in one of your early lectures <laughs> yeah. by one of these guys. Talk, talk us through that, because I think that's yeah. fascinating. Well, there, some of your listeners may remember... Um, uh, Struan Sutherland, the late Struan Sutherland, who uh, pioneered the first antivenom for the funnel web spider mm. bite, uh, which was killing people in Sydney. And he did that at CSL. And as it turned out in 1993, uh, when I'd only just come to the Department of Pharmacology, I asked him would he like to come to the university. So we established the Australian Venom Research Unit with he as the head. So he came along one morning and uh, said, uh, are you giving any lectures? And I said, yes, I've got a block of six to give on autonomic pharmacology. Please come along. So the next day was the first lecture. We came in way from the back of the theatre. Remember, this is a 450-seat theatre. Mm. And uh, I, it seemed to go all right. There was not, not too many darts thrown, etc. And at the end of the lecture, he came and had a cup of tea with me. And I said, well, uh, how did you like the lecture? And he said, I'm not coming anymore. And I was, I couldn't believe it. I said, what, sitting. was it that bad? <laughs> and he said, no, I just wanted to see if you could teach. <laughs> and for me, that was a, an amazing, if you like, a, a light bulb moment to think that a peer could come in mm. and test you out as to whether or not you could teach because he gave two lectures to all of the medical students each year and they were one of the best. Mm. Now, that, that was a long time ago. I mean, mm. what, what's happening today because... One of the things that we all know is that, you know, not all lectures that we go to are, are quality. And I think, you know, I've often no. said that part of the reason for the growth in online activities is that, 
you know, if I have to sit in the boring lecture room, I'd rather do it at home mm. um, because if I'm not getting anything extra from the experience, mm. wh- why would I go? Whereas mm. I'll still go and see someone live in concert, even though the sound quality is better on my MPEG-3 player, but I go because I get a different experience. I get something more. Mm. And unless we provide something more in, in university lectures, uh, students won't come. Mm. I mean, how, how are we dealing with that now? Well, fortunately, the medical students are a wonderful cohort. They help each other, they support each other through their learning, and they attend lectures. Mm. I would say they're close to 100%. Right, yeah. But it's the other students who are maybe doing multiple jobs, uh, all sorts of reasons, they don't come. So there might be 300 in a year in some of the Bachelor of Biomedicine uh, subjects, and yet you might only have 100 in the theatre. Now, what we generously do is put up our material onto the learning management system so they can see it 24 hours before you give the lecture. Yep. They're all your PowerPoint slides, etc. But you always keep something back. Yep. And the students that come and attend, when you get a standing ovation from them, you know they've enjoyed it. And that's the point about teaching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think too, uh, just, uh, well, you're probably the same as me, but when I used to teach a lot, um, I loved going in there. I loved teaching. Yeah. And um, I always was disturbed when some of my colleagues would use the phrase, I have to teach today. Yeah. And I'd say, no, you get to teach you today. Get to teach you today. get to teach today. It's a privilege. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a big difference. Laura? Yeah, the medical cohorts, um, at, at sort of at the Doherty, we deal with those. the medical cohorts, which are amazing. They're so interactive and also the Bachelor of Biomedicine as well. And attendance does dip off a little bit towards the end of the year. But as Jim says, you keep something back. Like, I think a lot of us who teach, we do love it. We keep them engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, and you give them something extra, it gives them an incentive to come in. And there are new tools that you can use now in lectures, like certain online tools, mm. um, which you can do with them in class. So, mm. you know. Mm. And Jim, just before we let you go, the, the block party, um, yep. what's going on there? What, what's, uh, what will people see if they come along? So the, the first thing on the Friday, the block party, it kicks off at 5.30. Uh, the current dean, Shidich Kapoor, will uh, welcome everybody, and then they will have a tour around the Triradiate. Then they'll have a barbecue in Professor's Walk, that wonderful precinct mm. that goes up to the old university house. And then on the uh, there's a Chiron luncheon for those that are over 50 years right. on the Saturday. That will be held in Queen's College at the Eakins Hall. And then there's a panel discussion for medical research evaluation, uh, evo- evolution and progress, I'm sorry, in the Sunderland Theatre uh, at 3.30 to 5. And then there's a, a number of um, reunion uh, events for each of the year groups, and I'll be speaking yeah. at one of those. So it's a huge opportunity for those uh, our wonderful graduates, and there's over 2,200 booked, and it's not too late. Uh, there is a phone number if you, you'd like to... Mm, we can we can post that we up. Can post that up. Details, but yeah. So yeah. over two thousand two hundred are booked already. They are indeed. And that's fantastic. Do you think everyone's going to be blown away coming back into the precinct now? Say with the Doherty, yeah. with the Victorian yeah. Cancer Centre. There's been so much growth in well, around I'm, the medical. I'm world. glad you mentioned that because we are very privileged to be able to do our research and to teach here <laughs> in this precinct. This medical precinct is is I believe the best in the world. Absolutely. Uh, when you think of the new children's, the Weehive, the Royal Melbourne, the women's. Doherty, VCCC, Peter Mack, the university, and then up the road you've got St Vincent's. These precincts are amazing. They're not the only one. We've got the Austin, we teach out in the country, and you've got the Monash precincts and down there at Geelong. So I think Melbourne gets it. We've been very uh, fortunate that the various governments, state governments, have supported us, and medical research and teaching is, is clearly one of the attractions of Melbourne. Jim, it's great to finally get you in my studio. Um, thanks so much for coming in, and good luck with the block party and... 
Good to see you. Well, thanks, Shannon, and congratulations on your program. Thank you. Professor James Angus is a Meredith Professor at the University of Melbourne in the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be uh, talking about something uh, out of spacey. Three, triple, Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 Triple Arts, a science program called Einstein and Gogo. If you've just checked in, I'm Dr. Shane in the studio. With me is Dr. Laura. We also have our first guest, uh, uh, our second guest for today. Jeez, I'm, I'm losing it. Uh, Dr. Ryan Shannon. He's from the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University. Ryan, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. Um, now, you've been uh, working in an area which I find absolutely fascinating, this whole thing of fast radio bursts out in space. So this is something that um, I, I love these areas where we just don't know. <laughs> like we just like we're we're seeing a few of these things, but we don't know. So, can you give us a, a bit of a rundown first on what a fast radio burst is? Yes, a fast radio burst is a split second, a millisecond flash of radio waves. <clears throat> uh, we see them in the sky. Uh, we've been observing, ser- searching for them with radio telescopes in Australia and around the world. Uh, we don't know what causes them, but we think they're coming from outside our own galaxy. There's mm. good evidence for that. Uh, but one of the big questions is, how far away are they actually coming from? Yeah. So they're fast. Are they intense as well, or are they really hard to detect? Or They, they can be incredibly bright. Okay. Uh, some of the brightest ones that we've found uh, outshine almost every other source in the radio sky, aside from the sun and you know the few uh, brightest supermassive black hole quasars. Right. So this is something that... Um, oh, uh, one of the questions, I how did we find the first one? Was it accidental? I mean, this is something we weren't looking for, right? So... Yeah, exactly. It's one of these, it is a really great story. Uh, People have been searching for these objects called pulsars, which have similar sorts of characteristics to fast radio bursts, Mm. but the pulsars are coming from our own galaxy. Uh, So people had developed techniques, new new novel techniques to find them. They were looking for them in our own galaxy, and then they started looking for them in nearby galaxies, Hmm. uh, the the large Magellanic and small Magellanic clouds. We actually had Jocelyn Bell on this show about 20 years ago. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Uh, But what ended up happening was that during one of these searches for pulsars in the large Magellanic clouds, they actually, somebody pointed the telescope in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So they pointed it for... Uh, out, uh, sort of away from the Magellanic clouds, you know, uh, maybe like 10 degrees away. Yeah. Anyway, so people were searching for pulsars in the Magellanic clouds and boom, this amazingly bright signal came in. It was hmm. called the Lorimer burst. Hmm. And, uh, f- named after the, the astronomer who found it. Is that the same astronomer who pointed the telescope in the wrong direction? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the other, other interesting thing was because of the way we record the radio data, uh, the, the signal was discovered, I think, about seven or eight years after it was, uh, f- that field, that, that field was first observed. Right. So you can go back and look at this old data yeah. and look at it with new techniques and find, and find new things. Yeah. So these, these bursts, um, one of the questions I have, you, you mentioned working out how far away they're, they are. Yeah. I mean, how do we go about determining that? Like, what's the process for working out how far away a signal like that comes from? Yeah. So the key property of the fast radio bursts, and the reason why we think they're coming from outside the galaxy is this thing called their dispersion. Mm-hmm. So uh, the radio waves, when they propagate through uh, space, space isn't perfectly empty. So the speed of, they don't travel at exactly the speed of light. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is, is that uh, the lower frequency, the, the redder wavelength radio waves travel a bit slower than the bluer mm-hmm. ones. Just like you can imagine uh, swimmers in a, in, a, in a swim meet. The fast swimmer is like the blue 
wavelength and mm-hmm. the slowest uh, swimmer is like the red wavelength. As the as the meet uh, progresses, the red red swimmer becomes further and further behind the blue yep. swimmer. Yep. So we can use that property to say how far they've they've traveled. And mm-hmm. based on that based on that property and the fact uh, our studies of the brightnesses of these bursts, we think they are coming from very uh, very distant galaxies. Hmm. And presumably that gives you a lot of information about what's between us and that point. Is that can you determine that sort yeah. of stuff? Yeah, it's a good point. Well, it's a good point to bring up point because the one other thing about the bursts that we don't know that much about right now is exactly where they're coming from. Yep. Uh, the bursts, uh, we, uh, the way that they've been found is they've been found using uh, large telescopes, but they don't have that uh, of great of pinpointing accuracy. Hmm. So we're only able to say to a region maybe about a half the size or a quarter the size of the, of the full moon, where exactly right. they're coming from. Which is huge in the sky. Which is huge in the sky. And we, so based on this dispersion property, we think they're coming from uh, billions of light years away. But we don't know exactly uh, what galaxy within that patch of sky they're coming from so yeah. far. Now, your team's been measuring a lot more of these recently. I mean, so there was, because there's not a huge number that we've seen, is there? So talk us through that. I mean, how many, how many were there before you guys got involved? Yeah, so before we got involved, there had been 27 that had been discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, those had been discovered over about a decade of searching. Yep. But the, the kind of funny thing about the bursts is that despite only them being so rarely found, we think they're happening very often. Okay. So we think over the entire sky in a day, there's hundreds to thousands going off. And the issue has been in the past that our radio telescopes can only see a relatively small patch of sky. So what, we, what we've done is we've used a new radio telescope uh, being built in regional Western Australia called the Australia Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Telescope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, an array of uh, 36 dishes which have uh, about 12 metres in size. But uh, the key game-changing thing about this telescope is that it's got this Australian-developed technology called phased array feeds. So this is, this is a very new radio technology, and it allows us to see a wider region of sky than was previously available. Okay. All, all the technology, you know, could only see one patch of sky. The, this, this new technology could see 36 times a greater well, okay. size. So yep. this is a big change. And so how many, how many have you detected since you've been using this technique? Yeah, so uh, it, the study that was published in Nature uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, found, we reported on the discovery of 20. Fast radio burst. Twenty in, wow. in a year. In a year. And there was twenty-seven before that yeah. in the last decade. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, when we, it was a bit funny. We we discovered our first in after only about three and a half days of observing, and uh, we thought we were on a, on a big roll, and they were going to kind of uh, rain in. Yeah. Uh, so it became a bit bit of a bit more of a struggle after that. It was yeah. getting, getting one every sort of with two weeks of observing. Yeah. And breaking this down for a medical biologist that barely understands, so you have now a huge radio telescope that is in Western Australia, and are you guys getting the data back in Melbourne, or do you, you know, how yeah. are you seeing these fast radio bursts? Yeah, so the the telescope is almost fully automatically run. So what ends up happening is, is that the data is collected there, uh, it's processed on, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a supercomputer, you know, it's a relatively... Uh, big workstation, and then what ends up happening is that we get email alerts saying uh, when we have discovered an event. So uh, mm-hmm. the, the the searches ran with only eight of the antennas over the course of uh, a year. You know, we, we weren't operating all the time. But, uh, yeah, we weren't st- you know, staying off day and night. Search, uh, so you're continually seeing these now? 
Uh, yeah, what ends up happening is that we would get these email alerts uh, when, it, when, it, when these events happened. Uh, one of them happened when I was actually at a dinner party at one of my collaborators' ha- houses, and uh, I was checking my email after the, after dinner, and, I, and lo and behold, we had an alert for one of these births that had happened. <laughs> you so. should have an app that people can watch. I've got this app yeah. I was talking about last week on the show that shows me when an earthquake yeah. occurs anywhere yeah. in the world. It's amazing. You should have an app for these uh, so people can follow because it's uh, it's cool stuff. In, in terms of so of the twenty odd that you've you've seen, I mean. How different are they from each other? Or are they all pretty much the same thing? Uh, they, they they have differences. The biggest difference is the range of what we this dispersions yep. okay. that we found. And pre, uh, the previous bursts, which have been primarily found by the Parkes Radar Telescope in uh, New South Wales, hmm. uh, our bursts have a bit lower dispersion. And this was the, this was one of the key findings of, a, hmm. of our study was that because of the way our, t- our telescope works, is that we see uh, brighter bursts than Parkes had seen. The fact that the brighter ones are lower dispersion than the fainter ones are higher dispersion means that there's a relationship between these two quantities, which people hadn't seen before. Mm. And what it's telling us, in fact, is that a majority of that dispersion is coming from not from our galaxy. We kind of knew that beforehand. But it's also not coming from the host galaxies either. It's coming from the space in between, between. Gal- right. space in between galaxies. And if, if it was the other way, if it was all coming from the uh host galaxies, we wouldn't see this relation at all. And this is telling us something that these bursts are going to be very useful tools going forward. Uh, Astronomers have this embarrassing problem that we don't know where about half the normal matter in the universe resides. It's called the missing baryon problem. And uh, these these bursts, because of the way that they probe uh, every single sort of atom in between us and it, Mm. it really tells us this is going to tell this. we're going to be able to use these as a tool to uh, say exactly where all this matter is. Yeah, I love the fact that recently we've had these these new tools coming in. I mean, the the gravity wave one is, is another example of where you, you almost have a new field of astronomy starting up as a result of this. You know, how do you how do you do astronomy with gravity waves? I mean, this is this is something really interesting to me. And and this is the same. It's sort of like a new branch of astronomy splitting off. You've got radio astronomy. You've got you know normal optical astronomy. You've got these various types of astronomy sitting there. And all of a sudden, there's this new piece of data that's that's just sit, sits alone in a way and, and completely completely different to what we've done before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for me, it's been really exciting. Uh, I came from a background of a po- being a pulsar astronomer, right. uh, looking at things very nearby in our own galaxy, and now, now, now I'm having to think about things that are coming from billions of light years away, yeah. and you know that on top of the compelling nature of transients. So this is, this is what we call sort of any, anything that varies in the sky. And, yeah. Uh, it's, just, it's a flash, and then it's gone away, and you're trying to figure out what it is. It's, just, it's a, you know... That, that's, you get really drawn to pro- uh, problems like this. So here's one of the things I have trouble getting my head around. Uh, so these are these are sort of millisecond bursts. They're really short. So you know they're they're, they're happening over you know a period of you know thousandth of a second. So what astronomical events? Because when I think of astronomical events, I think of you know long time scales, things that happen yeah. you know over sometimes hundreds of millions of years. You know some of them you know something like a supernova is relatively fast, but it's still long. Um, what sort of stuff can happen over 100 millisecond time, time frames? Do we have any clue? Well, I get, again, we point back to pulsars in our own galaxy. Yep. So I guess the first piece of uh, evidence <coughs> is, that, is, that, is that millisecond time scale. Mm-hmm. So to have something happen on that time scale, it has to happen from something quite small. So basically, you have to take you take the speed of light and multiply and multiply it by a millisecond, and you know light, light travels about thirty centimeters in a nanosecond, and it, so in a millisecond it travels about three hundred kilometers. Right. So you need to have something that big, that big. Yeah. So what 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 could be that big? Uh, it turns out that uh, 
neutron stars, of course, are the are are ten kilometers in size. So good, good, good uh, thing to look at. Mm-hmm. Black holes, similar. You know, the event horizons of black holes can be smaller than that, of course. So uh, you would look at for things like that, hmm. or things around uh, neutron stars or black holes. Yeah. So things perhaps falling into you know past the accretion disk of these these objects, or you know something that's happening really fast. Yeah. yeah. So the other uh, thing about fast radio bursts is that uh, none of them, except for one, has been found to repeat. Right. So uh, when when we did our searches, we pointed the telescopes in the same uh, patch as the sky day after day after day, which is a bit monotonous, but yep. we don't know where fast radio bursts come from, so you can point them anywhere yeah. and yep. have equal chance of getting them. So you might as well point in the same spots to get constraints on uh, if they repeat or not. So we had pointed for some of these fast radio bursts spots that were uh, for like over 30 days in the same patches of the sky. So no, nothing. In contrast, there's one burst that has been found to repeat. So we call it the repeater. Uh, And it will sometimes uh, emit, say, like uh, 90 pulses in an hour. Right. Wow. Okay, so so there's something over there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's very very different. But this goes back to this question about what causes these things. So uh, because it repeats, you can't say it's just two things smashing into each other and that they obliterate each other. Yeah. So you, you go and say that it has to be something that sort of sticks around. Or, or something yeah. orbiting something else. Yeah, something, something orbiting something something Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and every that. now and then we get a flash of it. Well, look, it's it's super interesting. I, I love the fact that, um, yeah, it seemed as though 20 years ago when I was doing my physics degree, um, th- there was there was less new stuff seemed to be coming out. We've got so many great new instruments, and we're just seeing so much stuff we don't understand in the universe. It's just um, it's opening wide up. It's such a great field to, to be in. Ryan, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us, and um, congratulations on the Nature paper, and, and good luck with uh, sorting out what these fast radio bursts are. And I hope they're not someone opening and closing a microwave door or something like that locally, <laughs> but uh, I think that's been and done, right? So, yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, Dr. Ryan Shannon is from the Center for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, folks, and then we'll be back with our third guest for today. Three. Triple. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein at Gogo. In the studio with us now is Dr. Jess Borger. She's from Monash University. Jess, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Dr. Shane. How did we find each other? Um, was it via Twitter? Via probably, right? I, I find know. most of my things through Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Twitter and probably ASI as well. ASI. Yeah. Yep. Now, uh, you're working in this area where, and look, Laura's going to be okay here, but as a physics guy, I'm going to struggle. Exosomes. Now, I got, I just worked out exomes. And, mm-hmm. and now someone's chucked in another S and O. Yes. <laughs> What's going on? Just imagine them as tiny little bubbles. Tiny I read somewhere, bubbles. I was trying to find analogies, and someone said cellular dandruff. Oh, that's <laughs> a good one. Right. Okay. But probably a little bit more functional than dandruff, right. I'm thinking. But so, they're, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, go ahead. Do you want me to yeah, try yeah, and explain tell, it tell to you? Yeah. So... I suppose, you know, Laura knows this as well. Cells have to communicate, right? Yep. Otherwise, we're not going to survive. And what scientists have thought for decades is that they just secrete... You know, they pop out little messages, just like simple words like feed me or, and then, you know, cytokines, chemokines, things that make the cells move or kill other cells. But what they have found, well, they found exosomes about 30 years ago, but they just thought they were little dying bodies of a cell. So they sort of thought garbage, sort of garbage cans that were just going off into the, into the blood and we didn't need them. But what they actually found out is that they are sort of like very long letters, like Mm -hmm. instructions, and they're wrapped up in the membrane of the cell. So they're wrapped up as, 
in like a little envelope and they're very discreet. I actually thought yesterday, I was in Ikea yesterday and I thought it's like an Ikea manual basically. You get this beautifully packaged sort of, you know, box and then you've got everything in there, the Allen key, the bits and pieces, you've got the instructions, you've got the yeah. whole lot. Um, and so it's very different to what a cell would just normally secrete. It's got this beautiful package that has to go to specific cells and it doesn't have to go to the cell next to it. It can follow the blood and go to cells far away in the body. And so they're fascinating. Right. And so, so I, I've heard there's so many ways in which cells communicate with, with, so how is this different? I mean, it seems to me like cells are putting out all sorts of chemicals all the time, yes. everywhere. Yes. What's specific about these? So that's the thing. The things that are getting popped out all the time, sort of any cell can see, right? The message yep. is just out there for everyone. This is very specific. So, what an exosome is, it's, it, it's made inside the cell. So mm-hmm. the cell has a plasma membrane, which, you know, protects it, makes it nice and yep. rigid, looks after it, and it's got a cytosol. So people know that as, you know, it's got sort of a soup full of proteins and metabolites and other things in it. Yep. And what an exosome is, is it's formed inside the cell, and it basically takes a big gulp of the cytoplasm and all the bits in there, um, and then it gets popped out of that, that cell. So it's this, it's, like I said, it's just this big package of genetic information, nucleic acids, proteins, and because it's out of a certain cell, and all cells have different markers that uniquely identify them, receptors, sort of like locks and keys. Yep. And because it's taking some of that host cell with it, it it has lots of different keys, let's say, and it's looking for specific locks on other cells okay. that direct it there. So it's right. looking for a specific cell with a specific address. So it's not seen by everything, and it's not taken up by everything. It has to go to the specific cells it can unlock, I suppose, mm. and then it deposits its its contents inside those cells. Mm. So is this is this how... Sorry, Laura, one more question for the, the physics guy. <laughs> so, so it seems to me in the body that there are some cells that just don't move around that much, like they stay in one part of the body. Is this how they get information to other cells that they need to do work, you know, elsewhere? Because, you know, some, obviously some cells move, like in, in our blood. But then there are other cells that don't. I mean, clearly in our brain and in our gut and other areas of the body where they don't move around. I mean, it sounds to me like this, this may be one way of them sort of sending out instructions and information and and a lot of detail about the cells themselves to other cells that for whatever reason need that the thing is you know there's still it's it's this new field it's only been around for about five years that people Mm. really have been going oh wow these guys actually do something they're not just garbage cans so there's still a lot of unknowns and the the truth is a lot of studies are still done in tissue culture plates outside of the body so it's very hard really to still know the exact effects happening inside the body but definitely you know some cells will travel through and talk to the cells that don't move Mm -hmm. But I think definitely exosomes are going to be a big part of moving through the body and selling, you know, um, yeah, selling instructions to other cells. Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah, and so I think you were kind of getting to what I was just thinking, which mm. so cells are releasing these exosomes all the time. But how long can they last once they're spat out of the cell? And can you detect them now, say, in the blood and saliva and things like that? And for how long after yeah, yeah, they've yeah. been spat out? So it's hard to tell that, right? Because you can't, in the body, you can't tell when are they being yeah, spat been... out. And, but definitely they're highly stable. So that was, you know, the stability of them is, is huge. You know, when we take them out of the body through plasma or whatever, you can freeze them you can rethaw them you can do anything you want to them and nothing happens to them they, mm. they're very very stable so you assume they probably are within the body as well um what was the rest of the question sorry Laura, you were saying um well just whether you could track them coming track out them, of yeah. the cells which is going to be very difficult right so well not really because like the thing is it depends what cell they are very heterogeneous so they do express a lot of different things some things in common with most cells you know cells have cholesterol right so they're going to have cholesterol and those sort of markers but they're also going to have very cell specific 
markers as well. So one of the big things is people want to use them as sort of liquid biopsies of potentially cancer, right? Because cancer cells pop these things out like crazy. So if you can find specific markers on these on these exosomes, then you can probably do some non-invasive type biopsies rather than go into a liver, say, and try and take mm. some cells. You could just take it from the blood. So, so they're stable and then you can hopefully detect them that way. So you piqued my interest there when you mentioned how cancer cells mm. do this differently. So are cancer cells putting more of these out because they're trying to switch off parts of the immune system or because they're trying to create more cancer cells? I mean... I think so, right? I think so. Again, it, we just don't know. We don't yeah. know the exact messages they're communicating, but they have a lot of these nucleic acids, which are called miRNAs and silencing sort of RNAs. And what they are, they're little non-coding bits of nucleic acid, but they can go in and they can shut off other proteins being made. So mm. what, an, you know, per se a cancer cell could do is shoot out all these sort of, you know, exosomes and switch off the cells that are trying to kill the tumour cells, like the cells I work on, killer T cells, that they've shown that they can, you know, suppress or stop them from doing their job, basically. Yeah. So they're quite clever, these exosomes. See, see I find that fascinating because the, the whole area for cancer for me, the way I've always viewed cancer is around the, the sort of mindset that cancer is an error that's occurring in the body. And it happens all the time throughout our life, and our immune system cleans it up. And then there are times where, as we get mm. older and so forth, our ability to do that sort of, you know, peters away a bit. And as a result, you know, you're a T-cell person, so you know <laughs> about this, Laura. But, you know, then, then we get these bulk areas of cancer that, that grow and cause us significant problems. But the way you describe it, it sounds more like the cancer sort of evolved its own sort of, it's not le- less of a mistake and more of an evolution towards it surviving and making sure it can really do its job. Whereas if cancer is viewed as just an error that we fix up every now and then, we clean up, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine how it gets to this sort of evolutionary state where it's actually... It's doing things to shut down parts of the body so it can survive. That seems less of an error, more of an adaptation. Yeah, yeah, it's very clever. And and I was sort of, you know, I was reading the history of what people think exosomes, and they also say that it could be part of that that viruses have possibly hijacked this sort of pathway as well, because viruses do something very similar, right? They package themselves up and they find receptors on cells and get into cells that way. And also something else I'm interested in is sort of host parasite interactions as well. And these parasites can secrete these exosomes as well. It's been shown like. Things like hookworm, you know, they secrete a lot of things, you know, to suppress the immune system, but one of them is these exosomes. So they also act to suppress the immune system and sort of evade detection. And so, Jess, is that -hmm. that exosomes coming out of parasitic infected cells or...? Parasites. Parasites themselves. Even plants, everything secretes these things. These bubbles are coming off everything, absolutely everything, but they come off the worms. Geez, mm-hmm. not, not to bag out the biology people, but how is it that we only just saw these things five years ago? Or, or is well, it... so they saw them. They saw right, them down okay. a microscope. They saw all the little bubbles. And as yep. I said, they just thought they were more, because they get formed in sort of lysosomic type pathway. You know, yep. it's very, but so a lysosome has a lot of digestive enzymes, right, to break up the stuff the cell doesn't want. So they just thought these things were being formed in there. So it was just a bit of garbage that the cell wanted. So they've seen them, but they never realized that they were really doing something. And then mm. they started to notice that they were going into other cells. They could put them on, you know, from one cell to another and see that they get taken up they had an effect so it's like well they're not garbage then right they're having some sort of immunomodulatory effect but they're released from everything shane this is immunology it's exciting stuff and it's fast <laughs> right right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can i please ask just one more question yeah, of I, course. I saw this um i saw this in your um sort of bio about what you were working on and i was really fascinated about the idea of car t cell yeah, exosomes right. so can I. you tell us a little bit more about that because that's a really exciting concept i know right you, we immunologists always have to do we need to break down car t cells you probably will yes. not just for me 
So, car teasers, so they're a little passion. We teaser immunologists, right? So we love these things. It's it's the big hot thing. It is, right. It's basically supercharging a T-cell, right? You A T-cell, as I said, you know, it has lots of these different receptors looking for a lock and a key. But a CAR-T is one that we've sort of changed and we've told it to look for a specific lock, I suppose we could say, an antigen that is expressed on a cancer cell. Go kill cancer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we just basically supercharge these killer T cells or maybe other cells. I don't know. No, killer T cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Laura probably might want to work on but, um, or does work on. But, um, you know, you can make these cars out of various T cells. Um, and then basically this will direct them at the cancer because you're telling it, look for that. They all have the same key and they're looking for that same lock that's mm-hmm. on the tumor cell. Um, so these exosomes, if you can then, because they take parts of the, the cell that they're coming from, if they're taking that car with them the the receptor you can you know direct them to that cancer and then you know a lot of t-cells don't survive that well in the tumor microenvironment because there's differences in a sort of metabolism and their environment to survive Mm. so if you can pump some of these exosomes in there they can send signals to those t-cells to keep growing to proliferate um to help them out they also contain a lot of the cytolytic so these are the sort of granules that will kill the tumor cell they also contain those so you can direct them all at the tumor so they're sort of like a little army that's coming to help the killer T-cells themselves. So there's all those sort of potential. Yeah, I mean, something I was kind of excited about, because, of course, CAR T-cell therapy, where you have these T-cells that can kill tumours, it's been really exciting in patients. It's been shown to regress a lot of cancers, which is really exciting, but it's also associated with a lot of toxicity Mm. in many patients. And so I thought that this CAR T-cell exosomes, instead of using these exosomes instead of the T-cells themselves, would be associated with a lot of toxicity in patients. Is that how you think about this? This would be a way around that. This is the thing. I think no one's really made these things yet, right? But it's possible. I think so, right? Well, they're talking about it, right? But I think it's it's like you're saying because you can get Do you use the bubble instead of the T cell. I know, right? Mm. The bubble. But that's the thing in as well. They're not metabolically active, so they will stop at some stage, unlike a T-cell, right? If you put in too many of these CAR-Ts, they could actually be detrimental to the body as well, like you're saying. So these exosomes as well, if they can contain some of these short nucleic acids that could possibly switch off things in the tumour cell, so, you know, you could do a bit of genetic engineering probably, put in some of these SIRNAs, these nucleic acids, and then they direct it at the tumour as well. They could shut down certain processes in the tumour. So the possibilities of exosomes and immunotherapy is huge, right? I personally yeah. think I really do, but a lot of studies need to be done. But the possibilities there, and I think it's mm. super exciting. There's so much we don't know still. So it, sounds, yeah. it sounds like I mean, so we're nowhere near the point of you know when, when we talk about T cells and other things. I mean, you're talking about actual therapies, Laura, yeah. in, in patients at the moment. But the exosome stuff seems like it's a, a decade away from being probably <sighs> usable in that way. Given given we're just barely scratching yeah. the surface. And, yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, yeah. yeah. And is is biotech getting <clears throat> behind this? I th- look, yes, definitely, right? More so as this liquid biopsy is biomarkers looking for cancer that could be there, looking for many disease, you know, pathologies. Um, but definitely biotech. There are and a lot pharma- of biotech. So pharmaceutical biotech companies, companies yeah. are jumping on this. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. Melbourne, I should also add, has um, Latrobe has just opened up the research centre for extracellular vesicles. So that's headed by Professor Andy Hill there. Mm. And they're really trying to work on all of these sort of things, characterise how exosomes made, you know, how it's taken up by a cell, biomarkers, host pathogens. So they're really, it's the first one in Australia. So that we're really, we've got a little hub here and there's some private companies as well. So it's expanding. Sounds like an area to get into if 
you're into immunology or, or anything about I the body so. in it's itself. Exciting stuff. Yeah, it's new stuff. Well, Jess, look, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us about this. It's really, um, it, it's fascinating. And I think, um, we, I, I think so. A, yeah, I, I hadn't heard much about this before. So it's always, I always get amazed when a, a field comes in the door of the studio that, you know, because we get so much exposure here to so much science. Mm. And when something comes in the door and we're like, extra what? <laughs> like it's, Cellular it's, dandra. Yeah. So, I know, right? I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I just love it. it, it it's funny to me, you know, when we have these things that people have been looking at forever and then all of a sudden, you know, someone realises, well, hang on, actually, you know, it's like it's like the old junk DNA stuff and stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, all of a sudden we realise that actually this this could be the game changer. Yeah. Not, not the other stuff we've been working on, yeah, but yeah. the stuff we've been ignoring could be the game changer, yeah. which, yeah. Is, um, which is pretty cool. Just thanks so much. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Jess Borger is from Monash University and, uh, yeah, interesting stuff, exosomes. All right, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment. Uh, Laura and I still have to do a bit of news for the show because so, it's been a big week in science this week. That's been fun. You're listening to Triple R. Three. Triple R. Dr. Laura, some news for us, please. I'm excited. So... There is, there's a few press releases that have been coming out in the last few days, and uh, this is, this hasn't been published, but it's been presented recently by researchers from Durham University in the UK, saying how dogs have been trained to sniff out malaria. Which I think is amazing. We know that dogs, you know, of course we know that they can sniff out truffles and bombs and drugs, but they've also been recently linked, if you haven't been under a rock, to a variety of medical diseases. They can sniff out cancer. Alzheimer's, they can detect proteins in the urine, they can sniff out depression, they can mm. detect certain stress hormones, but cancer, but this malaria one, this, sto- this study I thought was particularly cool. Okay, let me break it down. Okay, so 600 Gambian school children, they were tested for malaria and fitted with nylon socks, which they wore overnight, and then these socks were shipped to the UK where dogs were trained to smell the malaria-infected socks. Just off the feet? Just off the socks. Wow. Right? And the dogs could actually correctly identify children with malaria at a success rate of 70%, and this is a brand new trial, and they could accurately tell you which children didn't have malaria with a success rate of 90%. Wow. Now, I think this is amazing. And the big question that you may be asking is, do you smell different with malaria? Is that a thing? Yeah, how do they smell? It's a thing. So apparently, if you're infected with malaria, it's well known that you smell different and your breath smells different as well, the odour on your breath, which I didn't know. So this is amazing stuff. Immunologists who study malaria, we don't know that you actually smell different with malaria. And the SOC trial has been used before. So this is how they came up with it. Because when I read that, I was just like, how are people coming up with this stuff? They're putting dogs with socks with malaria. This doesn't make any sense. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss novel. Doesn't it? It sounds completely bizarre. But um, so it'd been shown a couple of years ago that actually if you take people who are infected with malaria and you take their socks off um, and then you incubate these socks with with mosquitoes, the mosquitoes go for socks from infected children. So the hypothesis here is because, of course, malaria is a mosquito born disease, um, the parasite parasite is transmitted by mosquitoes. This is a way that the parasite can attract more mosquitoes to infected individuals by the smell. So mosquitoes know when someone, and that's why they will keep biting and transmitting the disease from infected people. So yeah, there's a certain odour. And so with this certain odour, new tests other than just dog sniffing, you know, malarial dog sniffing dogs are, you know, coming up now. So there's a breath test to detect malaria. And so the thought process here is, and how this could be useful, is say, in 
is border control. So mm. you could have dogs or you could do a breath test at the border if you are suspected of having malaria, if you're going between different African countries. And, of course, there's been a lot of success in really reducing malaria um, rates in countries like um, the Gambia, for example. Bed nets have been really mm. successful. That's down mm. from 4 to 0.2% quite recently. And so these dogs could be on the border ready to sniff malaria, and then people could be taken aside and given the blood test, which, of course, is the sort of penultimate I, test. I'm impressed. Like, the dog's being able to do this is cool. It's amazing. I'm impressed the mosquitoes can do it. The mosquitoes like, can I mean, do it. Like, I mean, they don't have big noses like dogs, but that, that seems to me to be amazing. And and I wonder whether there is a pathway there for um, prevention in that if if you can make yourself, if you could spray something on yourself that yes, made you exactly. smell and like you didn't have malaria, yeah, then, then the maybe mosquitoes the mosquitoes leave you alone. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. is it just socks? Is it going to work with skin? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the other question I have there immediately is how how sort of symptomatic were these children wearing the socks? Yeah, exactly. Do they, yeah, and exactly. If, if I didn't know about the mosquitoes, I would say, do they just have fever and so they're just yeah, a bit yeah. more sweaty and so yeah. the dogs are like, yep, that smells yep, pretty that good to me. Yeah. That one stinks, exactly. <laughs> but I think with the um, with the mosquitoes going for these socks as yeah. well, this is something else. there is a chemical change here which um, can be detected. So I thought that was the coolest story that yeah, I'd read this It week. is really cool, really cool. Well, I have to say my news is a little bit sadder. Because um, this week, so people would be very aware because I've been geeking out on this on the show for for almost ten years. But the Kepler space probe, which is in orbit of Earth, has been looking at um, you know circa hundred thousand stars continuously, and what it looks for is little dips in the intensity of light from those stars. And this is really cool. It's called transit photometry, this technique. And what it means is if you're looking at a star and you're looking at the light from the star and there's a slight dip in intensity, that's because there's a planet around that star and it just passed between you and the star. Okay, that's great. And so, and so the light went down a little bit. Yep. And so what does this allow you to do? Well, it allows you to look at distant stars and say whether or not there are planets around those stars. And, and this is sort of something that people have been doing for a while with ground-based telescopes, but Kepler just blew us out of the water in terms of what it could do. So to give you some numbers on, on Kepler, because I remember being on the show, you know, 20 years ago, and there was a, you know, we were first talking about extrasolar planets, and there was a couple, you know, people, wow, you know, it was amazing. And we didn't think there were going to be many around. Um, Kepler has um, so far detected 5,580 extrasolar planets. So these are planets around other stars. So we're getting to the point now where they just seem to be common. Our view of this is, oh, they're they're around all stars. I mean, it's unusual that they wouldn't be. And now, of that 5,580, just over, or just under 2,700 of those have been confirmed by ground-based telescopes. So what happens is Kepler finds one, and then that, that that particular star, that information is sent to a ground-based telescope, and the ground-based telescope looks at it for longer and confirms that it really is a star with planets. And if people haven't heard of Kepler, of course, they're under a rock <coughs> right yeah. about now. Well, like you. And where, 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 where is Kepler, Dr. Shane? So Kepler's oh. in orbit, but it's um, it's a little craft, but it, it basically, it was launched nine and a half years ago, but finally, sadly, it's run out of fuel. And this was always known to happen, but it means it's basically come to the end of its life. Can they not so, go and refuel it and fix it? Well, if we, you know, if we could get to it, yes, maybe. But ah. actually, it's easier to just put up a new one. But Kepler's been um, been amazing because one of the things that happened is the the um, the stuff that positions Kepler 
the mechanics that positions Kepler broke down in 2013 and some very, very smart engineers worked out a way to get around this problem so that they could keep using it for another five years. And it's just, you know, kept That's going remarkable. from strength to strength. Amazing stuff. Now, <clears throat> it's not all doom and gloom because... Um, uh, earlier this year in April, we, we mentioned on the show, um, NASA launched the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which is the replacement for Can Kepler. it have a better name than that? TESS. TESS? Yeah. Cool. So the acronym is TESS. Um, and this is a more sophisticated... You know, it's, it's, it's younger, it's nine years younger, the technology's moved on, um, it'll be doing a, a grand job um, to replace Kepler. But I think uh, Kepler's one of those craft that has re... It has re-sort of imagined our view of the universe because it's shown us just so many extrasolar planets that we used to think of our solar system as kind of special. Mm. Uh, maybe yeah, not, not so much. special, actually. Maybe quite common, you know, and, and you know, our, our planet might be special, but and, and it's consistency. But Kepler has given us a lot um, over the years. So yeah, um, and of course, the, there's still um, 2,900 of its detected. Exoplanets still have to be confirmed. So it, it's finished, but the work it's left behind it for the ground-based telescopes is still ongoing and will be ongoing for many years. So, yeah. So that was a bit, bit sad. And, uh, the other one, of course, the, the craft that was sent to the asteroids, um, the Dawn spacecraft has also come to an end this week as well. Um, Big week. <laughs> and it sent back amazing, um, pictures of Ceres and other, other asteroids. And, you know, so a big week of shutdowns of, of some of the craft that we've loved for a long time on the show. Anyway, immunologists love this stuff, don't they, Laura? <laughs> it blows my mind. It blows your mind. Anyway, this is, this is cool stuff. But, um, but fear not, you know, new craft are going up and Tess is really up and cool running. Stuff. Tess is up and running and. Uh, I think NASA set a record with one of their craft being the closest object ever to the sun this week as well. So there's still some cool, some cool stuff going on. Or in that case, hot. But yeah. Dr. Laura, thanks so much for coming in and co-hosting with me today. <laughs> Such a pleasure, Dr. Shane. Um, we're going to hand over now, folks, to the team from Eat It. I can see, I'm pretty sure I heard, uh, both Matt and Cam come in earlier. So they're ready to go. Um, it has been a, a great show today. We've had some interesting guests and uh, great to hear about uh, some of the history of the the medical building there at University of Melbourne and, and these fast radio bursts. I want to know what they are. Still don't know what they are. Still don't know what they are. And it reminded me that we had, uh, I made a mention of Jocelyn Bell. We had the person who discovered pulsars on this show about 20 years ago. Which is really showing your age. Yeah, really showing yeah, my amazing. age. Anyway, folks, we're going to hand over to Eat It. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for listening to Triple R. And remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne Truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au